0: Have you ever wondered what theology, faith, religion would look like if we focused on the space between us? Probably not. However, that's the part of what we get when we look at the world through the lens of process relational theology. We get a glimpse of what it means to live relationally, to be accountable to the world and others, and to be responsible, co-creating with God and potentially being a part of this process of what? comes next, the unknown. You know, perhaps you've heard a few of the pub theologians in the podcast, and if you've actually been to the pub, you've heard this many times, talking about process philosophy and process theology. Well, in this episode, Janelle, Dan, Liz, myself, and Stephen get together with Dr. Jason Whitehead. Dr. Jason Whitehead is the Director of Consultation and Formation at the Isle of School of Theology here in Denver, Colorado. He has served in Pastoral roles for congregations in South Carolina, Virginia, and Colorado, Jason is a licensed clinical social worker, minister in the Presbyterian Church USA, and senior adjunct professor of pastoral care at ILIF. He's also the author of Redeeming Fear, a Constructive Theology for Living into Hope, as well as writing other articles relating to practical theology. This is a fantastic episode, and I hope that you enjoy this episode. If you like it, and if you like any of our episodes, make sure you go over to iTunes and you rate us. Give us a nice five-star rating, write a review, share that on Twitter. We're at brew underscore Theology, also Facebook and Instagram, at Brew Theology. If you've never been to the website or you've been, but you want to go back because there is a divine lure bringing you back to the website right about now, that's right, on the side. Go to brewtheology.org. Look at the different ways in which you can partner and you can sponsor with us. Speaking of sponsorship, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Declaration Brewing Company. Here in the Mile High City, Declaration Brewing, hashtag say no to macro. Those guys have one of the best beer gardens in the city. I could sit out there all Sunday afternoon. If you're a parent, it's gated. They've even got changing tables in the bathroom. They've got high chairs. They've got etching sketches. My daughter's, uh, well, the, the newborn doesn't really know much yet. But Caroline, my oldest, she loves Declaration. She's like, Dad, can we go to Declaration? Like, why? Because I can play outside. My friends can come, and it's safe, Dad. And you can walk home after having a few beers. So, t- Declaration. They, uh, they actually have my wife's favorite beer, which is the Scottish Ale. And that's what we're drinking tonight on this episode. Along with their collaboration beer with Fate. It's a sour kettle. Starts off a little lemony. And then you get all these other fruity tones. Oh, I love a good sour beer. Declaration Brewing Company here in Denver. Speaking of the Mile High City, the capital of craft beer and Declaration, Declaration is one of 12 breweries who are going to be bringing the glorious hops, the maltalicious, brutastic awesomeness, the nectar of the gods to Theology Beer Camp. That's theologybeercamp.com. If you want to get your tickets, we're bringing Trip Fuller and Peter Rollins into this city. Declaration is one of the twelve breweries, along with Adelitas Cocina y Cantina, my favorite place to get tacos every single Tuesday night, along with great tamales on Thursday. And Nixon's Coffee is going to bring the Kaladi Coffee on Saturday morning because we're not going to be drinking beer at eight a.m. So Theology Beer Camp bringing theology craft nerdum beer, cigars at night, some karaoke. Potential meditation for the introverts in the house. Uh, it's going to be one of those memories where you look back thinking to yourself, I'm glad I did that. I'm glad I got to participate in an event with some of the best breweries in the nation, like Black Project Beer. We've also got Seed Stock, Wits Inn, Barrels Beer Company, Grandma's House, Mantra, Call to Arms, River North, Chain Reaction. You know, I said declaration. We've got Boggy Draw, we've got Platte Park. Man, this is going to be great. It's going to be Hosted by Brew Theology, bringing in homebrew Christianity's awesome Trip Fuller and Peter Rollins. Those two go together. They're the greatest odd couple ever. And it's going to be at the venue, Platt Park Church, here in the greatest neighborhood within the greatest city in the US of A. So thanks to Platt Park Church and all of our sponsors, and Declaration and many more. Speaking of uh, ways in which you want to give back to the Brew Theology community, you can look online and see the different ways in which you can give. There's a Patreon page as well on the donate button, and we would uh, love that and appreciate that. Thank you for listening. Uh, Speaking of uh, things that are also happening besides Theology Beer Camp, we have one other really uh, cool gathering with a bunch of other people in a larger gathering in Hot Springs, North Carolina this summer. This is called the Wild Goose Festival. You're like, what in the world is the Wild Goose Festival? Well, it's a festival and it's held annually in North Carolina where you're going to bring a bunch of uh, kind of like hippie Christians together and people who are kind of on the fence. They don't know what they are. They're spiritual, but not religious. Some are very religious. (laughs) You know, it's a mix of people who are going to be uh, talking about things of justice and spirituality, bringing music and arts from different backgrounds, different faith walks. You know, you've got young and old. Uh, male, female, straight, LGBTQ. If you would love to be a part of the Wild Goose Festival, go to their website. We're going. We're going to be in the podcast tent. We're also going to have a booth on the main road where you can meet us. We'll have the Brew Theology sign. You can talk to Janelle, myself, also Liz and Alex. They're going to be there as well. We'll have some other fun things to give out. And late at night, come by the you know the campfire, smoke some stogies, and we'll brew some theology together. All right, guys, thanks so much again for listening, and if you like this episode, share it online. Enjoy. Peace. All right, welcome, everybody, to another Brew Theology podcast. Around the table tonight, we have Liz, Dan, Stephen, Janelle, and we are here with Dr. Jason Whitehead to talk about process theology, a little co-creating. And a theology in process. So last week at the pub, Jason talked to our Denver Brew Theology Group and gave a great lecture tonight. We're just going to have a conversation based on that lecture. But first question is, uh, you know, before we get into God and all the omnis and this and that, are you a sports guy? Jason. Generally speaking, yes. NBA fan? No. Sorry. If you were an NBA (laughs) fan, right now the NBA playoffs are happening... And if if God were in control of all things, uh, would he have a team? Would he have a a favorite?
1: Would they have to be in the playoffs? That would be the question. Because if it's God, and, you know, hey, God can put whoever wherever. Um, If you believe in those omnis. On the back end of that, uh, I'm a Hawks fan. So being originally from Atlanta, Georgia. Dwight Howard needs to find a new team. I'm sorry, your team doesn't have it this year. (laughs) Well.
0: But you don't you care go. about the NBA. So I was i just realize. kind of hoping for some, like, <laughs> that we would all maybe pray for the San Antonio Spurs right now, because they're actually okay. playing. Why the Spurs? That's God's team. Okay. Yeah. Just God's country or God's team? Texas is always God's country. I could talk about the Dallas Cowboys, but Stephen will crucify me, because he wants to talk about process tonight. Amen, Stephen? Amen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we're not going to do introductions, but we would love for you to introduce yourself, and you weren't always a...
1: A pastor, and you weren't always a theologian, and back in the day? Uh, well, back in the day, I, I started out in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Um, I grew up in probably the, one of the largest Evangelical Presbyterian churches in the nation, in uh, Orlando, Florida. Uh, first Pres in Orlando. Um, went on to go to the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, which is a at that time, an all-male military college, which is its a whole other set of stories for a whole other uh, podcast, possibly. Um, out of there, went and did a master's in social work, uh, as well as an MDiv at Union in Richmond, Virginia, which is, a, again, Presbyterian at the end of the day. And uh, wound up here about 12 years ago and uh, doing doctoral work and had a wonderful mentor who turned me on to this particular work, and uh, uh, he likes to think that I'm better at it somehow, but he always has something to teach me at the end of the day, which is, I think, the lesson of a true teacher and master of a a discipline, so uh, yay for good relationships. Yeah, so
0: tonight's topic, we're going to get into relationships, and just to to start the conversation, most of, of the people who've grown up in the church world, whether it's evangelical or Catholic, have a classical theism to which they were born into and a lot of this is based on the greco-roman church fathers who brought us the the omnis mm-hmm. you know you got the omnipotent god the omniscient god the, um, the omni benevolent, benevolent god and then you have the not the omnis but the impassable and then what's the other one uh the immutable, immutable. right the god does not change mm-hmm. and so uh, if you could start there because we have to start there in order to move into this process conversation so can we, let's just define those terms for people who may not sure. have any idea what they are.
1: Sure. Um, so early Christian thought in their eagerness to be accepted as something worth following at the end of the day uh, spent a lot of time in the philosophical squares um, in Greek culture and with Greek philosophers attempting to persuade that uh, the, that what they had to say about this um, uh, living, dying, and resurrected Jesus person was what their philosophy was ultimately talking about. It's what gave meaning to those words in many ways. And uh, the the uh, philosophical traditions of that day were um, around Platonic forms. Uh, there's this messy, cruddy, imperfect world, and there's this world of spiritual forms out there where, where uh, Uh, whatever we see in this world there is a perfected object of that. And so adopting some of that language, which really isn't even found in the Hebrew scriptures in many ways, um, adopting some of that language, uh, we came to talk about God in classical theism through this spiritual form. Uh, um, And so the omnis were developed, the the omnibenevolent, uh, all-loving, Uh, Omnipotent, all powerful, omniscient, all knowing, impassible, um, unfeeling, or kind of uncaring, and then immutable, unchanging. Um, This has persisted for what? What 2017, and we're yeah, we're talking uh, 100, 150 um, common era there, so 1,900 years or so. Um, and persisted through Catholic theology and through how Aquinas and others began to kind of think theologically through these Greek lenses. Um, so hopefully, does that get the fullness of that question?
0: Yeah, and so for for most people with these types of adjectives in which they describe God, if you get rid of one of them or sometimes two of them, their faith collapses. So for, for you, um, you, did you start in this traditional classical world like like I did? I don't. I can't speak for everybody else at the table, but these were definitely the words that that we were given. I don't know who gave them to us, but well, historically we know. But but yes, if somebody took away omnipotent, uh, I might as well be a heretic, and I probably am because I don't buy into
1: omnipotence. And it sounds like you don't either. Well, I, you know, I don't. I, I I did start off in that world, and. Um... Uh, I remember distinctly being in a class, uh, I think it was a, we call it Hebrew Bible now, but an Old Testament class at that time in, in my seminary, and somebody raised a question about something in one of the scriptures where God seems to change, and I remember raising my hand immediately after that and going, well, hey, no, immutability of God, this doesn't happen, that's heretical at the end of the day. Uh, I think I don't think I was the only person who raised my hand in that moment, but but uh, I certainly remember myself being a party to that, because that's probably one of like the three times that I spoke during the seminary experience there, being an introvert and all. Um, uh, I'll tell you, it was experience in, in being a therapist that really kind of drew, for me, the questions into a lot of the omnis. Um, and uh, um, pulled out in me, a desire to find a God that was worth worshiping because the one that I brought with me to that space
2: no longer worked when I tried to apply it.
0: Sorry, Dan can edit this out. I thought you were, you were going to ask something about the Omnis.
2: I was going to ask something. So, and this is a slight backtrack from your personal story, but this idea that um, a lot of what Christians believe about Jesus comes out of the Nicene conference and that decision by Constantine and his contemporaries to say, this is what Christianity is and this is what it isn't. Um, are the omnis part of that?
1: You know, I think that the omnis have been a part of every discussion of God that we've had. Even, I mean, even if we're talking process theology, it's a discussion about why the omnis don't work. Um,
2: negativo, yeah. yeah.
1: And, and so that, that sense to, to some extent that, um, We're trying to create doctrine that everybody can believe, that everybody can assimilate to at the end of the day. And so it's also where, you know, heresy is where you have schism in the church at the end of the day. Somebody doesn't like what somebody else says about something that they believe, and therefore, you know, the the anathemas, as we used to say. um, You know, you'll see a lot of that in the writings of those early church texts of so-and-so is anathema because they said this. Well. This is why you start having creeds and why you start in the Presbyterian Church, at least, having confessions. Um, To be able to mark in time, this is who we are in this context and what we believe. Um, Certain denominations and religious orientations nowadays give those the same way to Scripture in many ways. um, Forgetting their historical context.
2: Sure, because it seems like, for instance, um, some of the early Christian doctrines that got left out during the Nicene time or in the Nicene split, if you will, are some of those ideas that, like, you know, Jesus, um, Jesus contained a divine potential that he just realized better than the rest of us, for instance, and so therefore we all contain the Jesus, the Christ potential, and it's like that potentiality and that way of thinking, well, hmm, isn't that a lot, like, <laughs> becomes, starts to become a lot more similar to the way that we are thinking about process in different ways. That's, so I guess that's my question: Is did that stuff get left behind in the Nietzschean conference, and because it hasn't been part of the conversation for so long, and now we're in a postmodern era, and we can bring these things back because we're not being so regulated by those ways of thinking anymore? Yeah.
1: Uh, and that's a wonderful question that I really don't know the answer to. And I'm, that's what I'm good at as as a therapist: is saying I don't know what the hell's going on with that. It's but perfect. It's perfect. but yeah. it's it is one of those questions as uh, as well that. Um, yeah, throughout our history, we've taken a course that tends to marginalize certain views. I mean, that's what every creed and confession does. That's what the Protestant Reformation did, even though we were reforming in some ways. It's an attempt to marginalize some of the Catholic views of that day. Um, and in turn, the Catholic Church marginalizes the Protestants, and so we kill each other for several hundred years, just for shits and giggles. You can edit that, hopefully, or you can keep it. Um, But... (laughs) Man likes to keep shit. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, and so, uh, you know, some of those bifurcations, trifurcations, all of that. A lot of the, uh, as I understand it, and I'm not a history person, the Greek Orthodox tradition is a lot more amenable to process kind of understandings than our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters.
0: So for, for you specifically, you had talked about having a God worthy of, of your specific worship based on your own experiences. And so moving into process thought, process philosophy, process theology, can you just define when you when you started to dabble in this world, um, what were some of the first introductory thoughts, uh, concepts? Because some people, I mean, I, I think a lot of people who listen to this have never heard of process thought except for the occasional comments maybe throughout the, the podcasting. But this is the first time we're actually going to go into more depth in an in, introductory level to explain this. So. Uh, yeah, for you specifically, it was an experience, and then you got into process philosophy. W- when would you say, like, at what, what point? In-
1: so I, I got into the, began to dabble in a lot of process work. Uh, probably about three months into my doctoral program, was um, coming out of being a, a therapist working with folks who had a lot of experience with abuse and suffering, um, who questioned a lot of the benevolence of God, or at least the ability to God to be all-loving and to have these kinds of situations. Um, And I was sitting in a class uh, with a mentor um, who's now a colleague of mine, uh, and he was actually talking to another student who wanted to leave a certain doctrine up to mystery. Um, And this person actually came out of the Presbyterian church as well. Um, And I, I will always remember what what my mentor said at that time. He said, you know, when you have exhausted the potential that God has given you to reason through things, then you can attribute things to mystery, but not until then, because that does not give either satisfaction to the gifts and talents that God gives us to, to work and co-create in this world, um, nor does it give satisfaction to the people who need your care and your your responsible relationality in that particular space. And so that's, those are words that I've carried with me and wondered about. Um, and so out of that, you know, the, uh, there was one particular article by a person named Robert Thompson out of Bright Divinity who talked a lot about um, the emotionality of God um, through a process lens, and he was really talking about um, some of this impassibility Work that became really important to me in that sense of, of God as the fellow sufferer who cares. Um, and that really near to Emmanuel, imminent experience of God and the reality of a momentary-to-momentary momentary existence versus that transcendent, unapproachable God became much more um, real and worthy of worship in my, or, or just worth worshiping, um, and pushing my own capacities to their limits um, as best I could there. So. so then God is now not an unchanging deity.
0: God is, in, in your, your words, and or somebody else's words, is this uh, moved mover, most moved mover. Somebody had quoted that. Who was that? Pinnock.
3: Marjorie Suhaki.
0: She said that.
4: Okay. I thought, doesn't that? Pinnock also
3: she uses might that. Somebody's told it from somebody. Now
0: everybody uses it. Most moved mover. So you have a God who's not just transcendent like you were saying that we were uh we were born into that that deity in the skies now god is is moving and is feeling and is experiencing the same things that you are and then some so can can you explain uh how how do we get our minds wrapped around that kind of a God that now i mean it's supposed to, it's supposed to be God right God is supposed to be outside of us according to classical theism how can God then experience what we experience and then Go from there about this, this feely, feely God.
1: Great question. Um, and so this is where I think conceptually sometimes process, the, process thought becomes really obtuse in how they talk about things versus how they t- want to help us live into certain things. Um, in the process world, we talk about the dipolarity of God. In the translating into classic language we would talk about transcendent and imminent natures of God that that ability of God to be um, of this present moment but of every present moment, not just my present moment, not just your present moment, but the present moment of the totality of reality which takes something more than what I can handle bandwidth wise. Um, and so in that imminent presence um, in, in process, uh, and, I'm, and I'm translating here for, for classical. It's primordial and what's the other one? Consequential. Con- consequential, yeah. Um, and so I tend to translate as transcendent and, and, and imminent in, in that way because it's a little easier to speak across languages rather than speak your own sometimes. Um, that, that God being present in that imminent way allows us to remember in some ways that, one, that we're not alone. Um, and for God, in many ways, uh, in process thought, we move beyond that sense of omniscience, of, of really God knowing the future, which is what perfect knowledge is about in that classical theistic sense. It's perfect past, present, and, and future knowledge. Um, and they, we really want to cling to that idea that, that what we do and what we say matters in this world. It's a terrific and terrible responsibility, I think is how I've talked about it at times. Um, but that what we, the decisions we make, the choices that we have, the experiences that we bring into a space, the way that we uh, act out of habit or act out of creativity um, uh, allows us, a little bit of cat, work there. That's perfectly fine. I'm I'm having a hard time not laughing, but um, (laughs) so we'll have to edit. (laughs) So it's a God that takes in the experience of the world and and in essence takes in all the experiences of the world in each present moment. And and rather than act as some kind of um, coercive clockmaker or, you know, someone who knows what you're already going to do and is just amused by the fact that you think you have a choice in some particular opportunity. God takes in the context of that situation. Um, And and the way that I tend to to kind of think about it is is kind of how our our vision narrows and expands um, around a particular experience. Um, If we're reminded of something, we recall particular memories. We uh, may have particular emotions that are associated with something. um, But those past experiences don't predict the choice that we'll make. And and so out of that opportunity, this is where that idea of co-creation comes from, is that sense that the God with us in that moment offers us not only... The, the the possibility of a breadth of experience and information, but also the possibility to create something new in that space that is created just for that moment. Um, and that becomes a part of God's experience of the world, those emotions, those opportunities, those possibilities. Um, and out of that, the next set of possibilities are created. So then in the
0: Christian tradition with the scriptures, it says, I think it's in maybe in Hebrews where Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then in the Christian tradition, also you have the Trinity, which we won't get into that. But then there is that moment of Christians typically would say that Jesus is God. So then you they would say, well, then God doesn't change. But in this case, God is changing and is always changing.
1: Yes, no? Yes and no, I think, for most
0: process folks. So what would be the part where God's not changing
1: Um, God is not changing for me, the way that I tend to interpret that is God is not changing in how God continues to be present to us and present to all the world in its creative and co-creative moments in the present. Um, God is not changing in God's ability to take in the entirety of the past history of the world. And then out of that continue to offer possibilities that, that Lure, persuade are all words that, that have been used in, in process. Attempt to help us um, reflect and discern on a better path to, again, add beauty to the world. And that's, that's kind of the, these words, creativity, beauty, uh, novelty, to some extent, are those kind of practical, well, semi-practical words in, in process theology, which would be kind of signals of of God's love in a particular space or God's potential reaching actuality in space.
2: Well, in in process theology would say that God is unchanging in his, or in in God's, nature as a force for good exclusively, right? God is, in process. the process world, God is just good and is a force for good that never ceases.
1: Yeah, John, John Cobb and David Griffin want to talk about God as creative, responsive love. That's kind of our initial text on process theology. That's how they describe God. Um, the ability to respond in, in that present moment and out of that response create... Um, n- new loving possibilities. That doesn't mean every decision's gonna be wonderful because every past experience that gets us into a place can be pretty crappy at the end of the day, and our best possible choice can still feel really crappy sometimes. Um, But that comes out of that accumulated history, and it also comes out of what we have, uh, what we are accountable to in our past, as well as our cultures, our systems of oppression, justice, injustice, those kinds of things that create limits to possibilities in our own
2: worlds. Sure, because people um, in the discussion last week when we talked about this around the table was um, this is also a break from this idea of, in some ways, God as like, the creator in Genesis, and God created everything, and if God created everything, then God also created the devil, and God also created bad people, and why did God do this, and God must not all be all good, and so it also is a departure, and thinking about God is, that kind of omni is also letting go of some of that, you know, we, I don't know, actually, how do you resolve that? How, like, if God, if God is creative, then how does a person resolve the fact that God must have created bad things that or bad people or bad forces that do bad in the world
1: so I, th- I think the it, it, and if I understand it correctly from the, the process perspective um, so when we adhere to the omnis what it does at the end of the day is it makes God indictable for all the evil evil in the world that that God is God's benevolence is really pretty terrible at the end of the day. Um, limited's a good word as well. Um, when we begin to talk about uh, an open future and a co-creative process, um, just because God lures us into more loving relationships that bring about creativity and beauty doesn't mean that that's what we choose. Um, and, and humans over time and, and time again, whether that's uh, uh, through ecological destruction, through relational destruction, through cultural disintegration, whatever, whatever words we want to use in multiple ways, we've done some pretty sucky things to one another in this world, um, of which we are responsible. And, and the faith question that goes with that also is... Um, The inability of ourselves to be and live in, live with a responsible faith—that is, that we're not just responsible for ourselves and what's good for us, me, individually—but to discern in community and to discern in relationship to one another and to the world, what's what are we being lured to? That that is more godlike in these spaces. Um, process thus can be a little depressing at times if you take that responsibility side super seriously, which we need to take it seriously, but at the same time.
4: I think what's sometimes hard in that, um, in certain Christian traditions, is there's so much emphasis on the personal walk with God and that personal response, where we might claim some responsibility there if we're not praying it away, say in sanctification or something. Um, but we lose the sense of community and of systemic issues and of responsibility to the greater world. And how do we um, how do we reawaken that reality that that we need, to be doing more of like what we're doing here in Brew Theology, where we're we're saying that I'm going to go beyond just my responsibility, but I'm going to be responsible for the world around me too.
1: So I have a saying that I share with my students is that um, you know I, I'm okay with you believing what you need to believe that makes your life meaningful and more loving. Um, but it can't just be for you. That, that is, it can't just be good for you. It can't just be more loving for you. It has to be equally as good for the people around you and the world around you. Otherwise, you and I are going to have some doctrinal theology problems that we're going to have to work out at the end of the day. Um, one of the artifacts of, of American Christianity in particular is its uh, adherence to what we would call neoliberal ideologies of which one is kind of this radical individualism and this, this sense that I can do all things in and of myself, and so my faith is mine, um, you know, the, it's the bootstrap mentality in many ways, but it, it, what, what's being proven through psych literature nowadays is that what that has caused is um, a severe crisis of social, isolate, social isolation in this world that has similar physical impacts to smoking every day for your life. Heart disease, um, uh, all sorts of depressive issues, not just psychological but physiological issues as well. Our separation and our individual, individuality from one another is killing us. And, wow. Yeah, and so churches that preach this piss me off at the end of the day because it's not just about your faith or your walk with, with God because God didn't come here for you. Sorry.
4: I've been told that that's why he came many times.
1: <laughs> well, and, and, and God can be... Fickle in that way sometimes, but or at least we can be fickle about God in that way. Um, Your faith and your practices and your theology do need to be life-giving for you and life-giving for the world around you. Um, That, I think, is a more authentic witness to... um, the scriptures that we hold true and the theological heritage that I think is intended in those communities of God where they gathered around a table and shared a meal and remembered and reminded each other that they loved one
3: another. So one of the questions or one of the comments that I had when when we were discussing this topic uh, last week was, you know, some people were disturbed uh, by the, the way you presented this radical responsibility, because our uh, the choices that we make in every moment do matter, um, not just for us, but for also, you know, I'm trying to use not Whiteheadian language, but other people. Sure. <laughs> and uh, that, that
1: can be Whiteheadian language, too. <laughs>
3: <laughs> other people. And I guess, what do you say to that? I know, I know you already mentioned that it can be depressing sometimes, but... I, on one level I understand what you say that you know you every every step that you take does make a difference, but on the other hand in the in the cosmic scope it, it doesn't. Um what do you think process or your interpretation of process, what do you think uh what do you have to say about that?
1: You know, I, I would say um At the end of the day, every step does matter, especially every uncritical step that we take. And, and by uncritical, I mean um, doing things out of habit because we're afraid of trying something new. Um, uh, you know, m- not my father, but you know, a parent got angry with me, and so I, I in the same situation with my child, I, I think I have to be angry. Well, no, there there are better possibilities there. What you're doing is acting on an uncritical belief or an uncritical assumption about how the world should work because it feels safe to you. Faith is not meant to be safe. Never meant to be safe. I mean, it wasn't safe for those folks before Constantine. It wasn't safe for many of them after Constantine. Calvin drowned a few Anabaptists in his days, even though he apologized for it. wasn't safe for them either. Um, at, at the end of the day, faith is not meant to be safe. Irresponsible faith is atrocious at the end of the day. And that's, that's I think, what I was speaking to, to, to some extent. Because when we talk in that process world, we want to talk about how we take in experience and what it becomes in the past comes through reflection. It comes through a critical appropriation of the experience, not an uncritical, that didn't mean anything. Um, process folks are, are famous for their butterfly in Japan, tornadoes in Kansas analogy and and, the butterfly (laughs) effect. Yeah.
3: Um, where, where, I think that's what freaked some people out in the table is like, is he really saying that, you know, if I lift my finger here and it causes something over there, am I really responsible? Well,
1: uh, so what I would do, and, and I come out of the pastoral care side of that is that how we treat people matters, how we care for people, how we, um, teach men that violence and anger is the only way that they can culturally express themselves and be considered a man still. Well, it's crap. Uh, I've met met many empathic men who don't have that opportunity to live that fully um, because they feel cultural pressures to be, myself included sometimes, Uh, coming out of a military school and had my fair share of violent activities both perpetrated on me and sometimes perpetrated by me. Um, And those mattered. And because I'm still reflecting on them, they still matter.
2: But as someone who's pretty new to process theology, um, I think the heartening thing about process is this, and see if you agree with me, is this idea that even in our poor choices or our mixed bag of um, examined and unexamined living, that God is with us in those moments. And if God is an irrepressible force for good, it's heartening to know that that there's something there with us in those moments. I think that's very comforting. Uh,
1: and I would agree with that entirely. Is is um, and and one of the interesting. It's not always kind of culturally appropriate at times, but that um, idea from time to time that regardless of us giving up on God, God remains with us and does not give up on us and our ability to um, be creative and novel in, in spaces. And so, um, yes, it can be a little depressing on the responsibility side tom- sometimes because for a large majority, speaking just in the American culture and, and speaking as a white guy, I don't have to be accountable for my actions I really don't because I'm in power. But the way that I'm accountable for my actions matters to the female colleagues that I work with and matters to my two daughters and matters to my wife and matters to the other women that I work with or matters to persons of color that I work with. Um, And so... Yeah, it's a radical call to really live a faith of relationality. And, and, and really, the, it's not process theology. It's process relational theology. It, it's a hyphenated name. and It was the 70s is when that was started. But that idea that relationality is a part of that and part of everything.
5: I was uh, thinking about, I mean, for myself, when I started getting into process thinking, that weight that we 've been talking about really sat heavy on me and and I was thinking of... <laughs> still does for Dan uh, yeah um, but i I wonder as a as a counselor what what ways you could offer people to work through some of those things because certainly if the the weight of the negative the times that i 'm yelling at my Daughter, in frustration, those are the ones that ring with me for days on end. But I'm quick to forget the moments when I offered um, an apology or asked her for forgiveness of me, and uh, and and those are also equally moving in the world, creating new possibilities of of relationship between us, instilling in her um, positive. Uh, characteristics and, and traits that I would love to see her move into the world with and and reinforce in myself those those traits as well so as a counselor are there ways that you have to kind of encourage us that feel that weight of our own decisions to then move forward into also recognizing the positive ways that we're responding in the world
1: um, as someone who remembers the same kinds of experiences with his own daughters from from time to time um, you know, just even hearing you you talk about that helps me feel a little bit better about my context that that I'm not the only one who's uh, constantly cajoling a nine-year-old to get her doggone hairbrush so we can get out of the house. Um, but that that idea for me, even that I remember those times, is the lure to a different possibility. If I can critically think about those memories as something that that did not put more love into the world, but that out of that experience, I might be able to grow into being patient for 10 more seconds the next time. That's still, that's possibility. That's creativity. You're not stuck. You're not always going to yell. Hopefully, I'm not always going to yell either. Um, and so we find new ways. You find ways of going around what was the resistance to that and, and find a new way to connect relation in relational ways that draw people into their own creativity. You know, the, the, the youngest daughter of ours is very competitive. So if we can make anything a game or anything a competition, even if it's a competition against the clock, she's ready before anybody else in the house. If we just tell her to get ready, she won't do anything and it took us almost like a year to figure that out, is that if, if we would just be creative enough to figure out the game, she would play it. Likewise, for those, and coming out of a counseling background myself, one of the difficulties of um, classical theologies um, is that it's hard to see yourself as changing. It's hard to see yourself as part of that ongoing creative process at the end of the day. And that your past doesn't define you. It describes you in that moment, but it doesn't define you and define what you'll do next. And, and you don't have to do what's next alone. I mean, even counseling is a relationship with another person to figure out creative possibilities for the next steps in your life. That's not process work in a nutshell. I don't know what is, because we all get trapped in certain habits or ideas or experiences of ourselves, and we only think that way. And and in the broad tapestry of our lives, while we're focusing on the bottom left corner, God's tapping us on the shoulder, but saying, "But what about the top right corner?" And just glance, you don't have to stare at it all night, just glance at it and tell me how that renegotiates what this experience means in the bottom left. And even that's just a bridge to possibility for me.
2: Well, and it seems like there's there must be a, at least in the interpretation that seems, the ready interpretation that I have of it too, there seems to be a, a strong place in there for extending that, um, that gracious re- relationality to oneself. And then that's a pretty radical act as well, you know, to be critical, but not to be like critical in in a punitive way. And in some ways, I was thinking about, you know, if you worship a, a, a god that's ready to punish you for any misstep, that uh, you know that affects the way that you treat other people, and that if, potentially, or and the way that you treat yourself. But if you worship a god who is who stays with you in the midst of choices and difficult choices and taking responsibility and being gracious and being forgiving, then why not extend that back to yourself?
1: Yeah. yeah there's a large body of literature on self-compassion and it's, it's effects on us and, and our ability to be creative in in spaces. And and that, I think that's a, a vital part of understanding how through empathy to be connected to the people around us. Um, you know, it, uh, I don't know where to go with this, but it's it's kind of that why hope for grace when you can experience it through self-compassion and through uh, whether that's, you know, and I've done it to my daughters plenty of times. You know what? I'm really sorry that I got angry. I was wrong and, and I shouldn't have done that. And, you know, here's what I hope we can do next time. And I'll, I may forget, but hey, I'm going to do my best because I'm trying to figure this out like you're trying to figure out how to be nine. Um, and being able to admit that for me helps me not hold on quite so tightly to those missteps. Okay, so while I appreciate process
0: specifically due to this theodicy dilemma, the problem of evil, and have gone through that with friends who have battled with cancer and passed away, two different friends, and so uh, that's understandable. That makes sense. Now, for other people, it might make sense, but then at the same time, you hear, and I've heard pastors say this that, well, God is in control. Well, God is in charge. Well, God has a plan. And those are comforting words, and we've all heard them probably one point or another, if not many times in our lives. Uh, so specifically speak to the divine lure versus God is in control, because I think a lot of people get hung up on, on that specific verbiage and that mentality of who they want God to be, but yet practically who they know God probably isn't. I hate to assume this for people, but I. Yeah, well, speak, it's just such a small experience.
1: question to have to deal with at the end of the day. A um, theodicy. The, cool. Some theodicy. I only taught ten weeks on this a couple of years back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, well, what and what you're going back to to some extent is going back to the omni argument. If God is in control, God is all powerful, um, and, and that that's or at least
0: Plan B. Like people, even if if they've let's say they still use the word omnipotent, but they say, well, God has a limited God's self. And so people will use that that language even for Christ. Well, God limited God's self in Christ. It gives people a sense of, well, God still has control, but in this scenario, I have control. Like they want, they want to do the synergistic thing, but they also want to hold on to that powerful God.
1: Well, I mean, as as human beings, we we all have control issues from, from time to time. Um, Speak for yourself. Well, (laughs) um, And it's, you know, it's a really, so I get it. I do, at the end of the day. It can be tremendously comforting um, to believe that we as human beings are neither capable nor culpable for the evil acts that are perpetrated in this world. Um, that, that it's, it's wonderful to think, I mean, a weight's lifted If I'm not responsible for all of these things, if if I have no control over it, and it's part of God's plan, then I can pray for you. I don't have to relate to you. I don't have to help alleviate your suffering. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to respond other than prayer, because that's what God hears in those. but, but, But if God's in control anyway, God could care less about your prayers, honestly, because God already knows what's gonna happen next and whatever the hell you say doesn't matter. We're gonna talk about um, prayer in a
0: second, okay, so but, yeah, let's we'll remember get there. to go back
1: there. <laughs> um, but that, that, that idea for me, at the end of the day, um, is that part of this is we've been gifted this relational world. And that's not just human to human relationships, that's relationships to everything. but plants, animals, um, dirt, rocks, ecosystems, political systems, cultural systems, um, all of those places, we have been evolved into this world um, through what we would call that sense of lure. And and the idea of lure is that, and, and we had a great conversation with this after the the, the meeting last week about this idea of, of initial aim versus the possibility of initial aims, that, that there are great possibilities rather than only one good one, which speaks to perfection. And, and Kyle and Stephen were a part of that conversation and I really appreciated that because it helped me rethink some of this, these things, is that regardless of the space we're in and the cramp that we've gotten in, there are good choices Or there are choices that can draw us into a different space. Now, I won't say that it's all going to be hopeful spaces. I don't say that we, you know, move straight from a dark valley to the green pastures, because that's a journey. I mean, even the psalmist says so. It's a journey, and you need staffs. Things that will support you to help you walk your way through that might interpret that as relationships with other people, professional, mentoring, whatever that is, God, faith, those kinds of things that support us. But that we have to take a step. But we got to we got to move. And, and that can't be all on God to move us. And it can't be God's sole responsibility for that to happen in the process. World, we bear the brunt, but we also bear the joys. That moment when you stop, that moment when I stop myself and just say, okay, competition, competition, let's try that and see if that'll work this time. I'm like, good. Okay, now, now I'm not stressed. I can relate better to her. She'll relate better to me, and it starts off the day better for all of us. Rather than, okay, she's always gonna be a belligerent five-year-old who hates to be dressed before she walks out to kindergarten and she will never change, and I will just have to force her to change or pick out her clothes for her, put it on. That That's not a very good relationship, even if it is a relationship that, at all.
4: That's a great example of what you're talking about, co-creating with God, though, too, exactly that image of we can be that stubborn, stuck person and stay there forever and just hope that he will change us, or we can let him come in and Acknowledge our faults and and work with them to to make something new. I mean, I think that's pretty transformative.
1: Yeah, and I think so. So the, uh, the, I'll, say, I'll say the one struggle that I have there is the "come inside" language, because I would say God comes alongside. Mm-hmm. Because the the inside for me has some of that, and it's probably just my old evangelical side of me of you know all the 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 striper songs about god dwelling in me yes. and dancing around um, at the, the youth rallies crying you waiting for to, her to be invite saved invite
0: jesus into the heart. Uh, something
1: like that yeah. yes and and so but but the, the god that comes alongside the fellow sufferer who cares um, because that, that inside experience turns it into something individual because if god's alongside me and if we can visualize that then god is alongside you as well and God's in that space in between us connecting us rather than just within me making me see you better. Okay. Yeah. Is that?
4: Yeah, that helps.
0: So I I appreciate the human responsibility because it, it at least makes us wake up, you know, wake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, let Christ shine, you know, and that it's very Pauline scriptural, which people go, yeah, that's the Bible. It's been there all along. Faith that works is dead. Thank you, James. I'm glad it's still in the canon. Okay, so... And here's, okay, here's the thing. Human responsibility. However, others are now going, why God? Why the name God? Why are we calling this a deity? And I had a friend even just recently, after hearing you talk about this, who's in a place of not knowing if he believes in God or not, going, I think I can can work on this process philosophy in my own life. It makes sense. But why do I need the language God?
1: Um... uh You know, actually, I think a lot of process theologians don't even use the language of God anymore, but they use a different set of adjectives, because uh, like every word in any language, it comes with baggage at the end of the day. It it comes with our meanings. So so if we're talking from, from this process lens, when we hear the word God in the present, it drags up every single kind of past experience, highlighting a few depending on who we're around. Brings up a particular emotions. Emotions, as we know, neurophysiologically cause particular kinds of reactions in us. They, they give kind of a glow around a certain experience, is, is if I'm going to visualize something like that. They make us say, okay, this is the only path we can go in at the end of the day. And so, you know, Cobb and Griffin talk about creative, responsive love. Some of you have, who have read some of the other folks um, know that that the word God is a human word to describe something that we've been trying to describe for a long time. Um, what the, the Hebrew scriptures have 12 or some, I, I'm a terrible Hebrew scripture person, but there's 12 names of of God and more, many more, seven, okay. Seventy. Seventy, excuse me. Um, Yeah, please correct me because I'm a bad evangelical. Um, I was a bad evangelical when I was one. Um, But, but, and all of those contain different sets of meaning. Um, When I write nowadays, I either talk about... um, the divinity in the world or ultimate creativity. This, this idea of, of that there's something that, that is out there luring us into a greater creativity together rather than using the word God because I, I write in places where a lot of univer, Unitarians walk and Universalists walk and so I want that. I don't want God language to trip somebody up from being a better person in the short term. We can talk about how they got there another time. Yeah, no, this, this is helpful,
0: and I know that about probably a year ago when um, Liz and I were talking more, if I, if I can say this on the podcast, I haven't even asked your permission, is this okay? What's he going to say right now? I think this will be okay. You can cut it out. Yeah, so Liz used the language uh, universal compassion as somebody who's not a Christian, who's a Buddhist, who's also an atheist, um, and how I first thought that's that's different language. I'm not used to that. Uh, but now having made sense of open and relational uh, process philosophy now into my theology, I can say, well, listen, I probably have more similar beliefs than a lot of people from my evangelical background. So going back to the language of God, do we do we tell our—what do you think? Uh, I'm a pastor counselor right now. <laughs> what do you think? I'm in therapy. Can, can we just—can we get rid of God? You...
1: Um. <laughs> I think the word, yes, at times. Okay. But, but uh, the, the backside of that is for people who find it life-giving to use that word and use it in ways that co-construct and co-create re- realities that you otherwise really wouldn't have seen without it, then by all means use the word. We create language to explain things. That mean yeah, sure. to, to communicate to one another the experience that we have with something and to derive meaning. A lot of people still find meaning in the word God. I don't want to cut that off from people. I don't find as much meaning in it because I find it too constricting. A- at the end of the day, theology, the study of God. Well, that's kind of... Um, see, see, even... We wanted to. Is that a lightning strike? That that was a good one. Um, No, Um, but that that idea at the end of the day of finding a way to describe um, not only how you make meaning of the world, but what helps you make meaning of the world. Process relational work is a philosophy and a metaphysic that's intended to. Ground us in that greater possibility of a fully relational world. I don't think Whitehead used the word God or did sparingly if he did. Um, yeah, it was, it was it was it was hartshorn who moved it out of that space and started talking about its relationship to Christian theology.
2: well, and Ryan, I feel like our it's interesting as learning about process theology as a Buddhist atheist, and I feel like our understanding of these things are starting to converge because I think there is something in um, Buddhist thought, there is sort of um, universal loving kindness, which is a force in the world. And there is this idea of shunyata, which I'm probably not saying it right at all, but it's this idea that basically the world is essentially um, good and empty. And in that sense of goodness and creativity and emptiness, new things arise. Things arise in our brain, things arise in the material world. And so it's a really similar concept, but I, I think God is helpful if if a person is looking for that idea, but with a sense of greater consciousness. Because the Buddhist concepts tend to be pretty like, they, these things just exist. Shunyata, the fundamental emptiness, warm emptiness of things just exists. Um, universal compassion just exists. Buddha nature just exists. But the sense of God, meaning that there is some sort of like sentience is that maybe that slight difference. And for me, I've actually found that really interesting and helpful and has, is making me change the way I think about my spirituality. So when you talk about God versus not God, is it, does it just happen or is there consciousness making it happen?
3: Yeah. And for those that are listening and kind of struggle with the word God, I, it happened in our table. Somebody, somebody mentioned, I, why do we have to call it God? I prefer the one. And I said, yeah, that's, that's fine too. Um, I was reading Joseph Bracken, who's a Catholic process theologian. He was using the word of, I mean, he uses the word God, but he describes God as an um, interpersonal process. So God is a process itself. He's Trinitarian, so he, he works that out. Um, Thomas J. Ord, who's at an evangelical-ish, open and relational, I think he's a process theologian. Um, he, I would say he's a process guy, and I think he would, too. Uh, he he talks about God as self-giving, others-empowering love, and that's probably been the most helpful for me. Uh, self-giving, others-empowering love, and that goes back to Philippians too. That um, even though Christ was in the form of man, He emptied Himself.
1: Mm-hmm. A, well, and even I mean even Richard War's work. Did I, what did
3: I say? Um, Ephesians, Ephesians. Yeah. I mean Philippians Dan okay, to read his Bible yeah. more yeah. um, i evangelical
1: too At the end of the day, even though it uses traditional language Talks a lot about the relationality Between self and the world And the relationality of the Trinity as well As more indicative and descriptive Of those particular containers The words are the containers For the meaning Than the way that the omnis Or even other words that we've used Throughout the history
3: yeah, and I think for the Christian, when you read Scripture, I think we have, at least my interpretation of the Scripture, is that we have freedom in choosing how we speak of God. Yeah, that's great. And I think too, just even having a
0: child, and I would love for for you, you dads as well, uh, who have children, because you, I think both of you, Stephen and Jason, you you have children that are older than mine. And Caroline's asking questions about God, and we, we're we reading these children children's Bible stories, and she, you know, I, I realized, like, how do you describe God to a child? Because if you can do that, then that's really what matters at the end of the day. Adults, we talk about things that kids don't care about. And then when you get older, then you, you're, you go back to your childlike self. We all know this. So, I mean, I, and I use language. I use very concrete words. I say, oh, God's like the tree, gives you shade, even though we know God's not the tree. Um and then, well, if you're a panentheist or pantheist, maybe God is a tree. And then uh, <laughs> oh, that'd be yeah, pantheist. Yeah, yeah. So God is God is within the tree somehow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and then you know, well, God's like the sun gives you light, and so you are to shine God's light. And when we pray, I mean, even it all it all applies with praying. And how do you tell? How do you tell your kids like, hey, we're talking to this God. And now we're going to live out this way of this rabbi who's in relationship with this God 2,000 years ago. But it still applies to today. Because this, this is confusing for adults, but for kids, kids are, they, they're developmentally, they're in a different place. So you have a nine-year-old, and you have a seven?
5: or No, five and two. Five and two, and I have a
0: four, yeah, and
5: a, and a one, not even why, one. Why do you yeah. tell them? Why don't you ask them?
0: Because they
1: ask us questions.
5: Isn't the whole point to ask them questions ask so that you. you don't have to answer? <laughs> <laughs> no. It's a very
1: functional answer.
5: Yeah. Very that, utilitarian. For, for me, I mean, I, I, that's, I'm amazed at the way, because we don't, in my family, we don't pray before meals. God language is not something that's a part of a regular ritual in our household. So God language shows up because it, shows up in culture it shows up in relationships that we have with other people that have that um, religious context in their life uh, so it's interesting the way that that our five-year-old more than our two-year-old answers those kind of questions yeah. and it's really helpful to think about that because of the baggage that I've had growing up in those contexts where God was not a helpful force in
1: Um, So the first thing I was going to say is relative to that idea of how many of our faiths get stuck in concrete places, um, that we never grow out of the developmental stage that we begin in, because we don't, in our particular traditions nowadays, have language of process or progress or something that... Moves us from that, you know, using traditional language, that moment of justification, when we realize that God is for us. Great! Now I don't have to do crap anymore, except for chew my chips more carefully. Um, but that that idea, in some ways, of um, we have not built within our meaning systems, particularly in the Christian tradition, for the most part. Um, built in for the fact that people grow and grow up. We expect the Bible story, stories when we were kids to work when we are adults. And the problem is the, the, the world gets more complex as we have more experience, as we meet more people, as we relate more. And we have to move in those spaces um, with a different set of meanings intact. And so um, my wife and I, We do pray before meals because our kids like to. They like the Johnny Appleseed song. They love to sing it. They, I think they just like to scream at the top of their lungs before we eat. Um, But we often talk with them about the idea that um, God is better shown than described, And, and that's that idea of how we treat one another reveals more about God than any words we could develop how we relate to one another, how we are present to one another. And the the idea from Robert Mesley, which I think you alluded to without actually, about relational power, and really that, that last point of affecting others having first been affected by them. You're asking me a question. Tell me where the question comes from so that I know who you are in this moment. And out of that, I can respond. If I'm just describing God to you I'm being coercive. I'm not listening to, may not even be the need to understand who God is. Just, are you listening? At the end of the day, do you care? Versus, can you actually impart knowledge to me that I can take from four years old to 12 years old until I go to the ministers and say, your job's crap. Um, And I'm going to not come back till after college when I have my kid and I don't know what to do with them and I need an hour off on Sunday mornings. Um, so yeah,
4: is does part of this develop out of? Um, so many of us come from traditions where we got saved very young, like sometimes as young as four or five, sometimes ten, um, and then depending on traditions, baptism may play an important marker, or catechism may play an important marker. In my tradition, we also then had sanctification, which was like the next step. But if you do all that stuff by the time you're 18, um, and I'm, I'm not articulating this well right now, but like, then I'm done. Like,
1: you've, like, you've maxed your God potential?
4: I, I mean, I think that that is the message that often gets communicated in a lot of these traditions, that once you've kind of hit these milestones and you're not breaking any of the Ten Commandments and you try to be nice and you listen to Christian music, that you're good. Like, there isn't anything more for me to develop, right? Because I did it all. And so I think that I've noticed with, especially with some of my friends that have really struggled with my transition away from that, like trying to help them even see beyond that is really difficult. How do we help those people that, that we love and care about that have awesome intentions and care about us and are worried about us How do we help them know that we're okay and that this development that we're going through is not a development away from God, but a development into God? Or I don't know if that makes sense. (laughs)
1: Uh, uh, No, I mean, I I, I think it does. I mean, in many ways, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's it's the... um, it's the question of how do you negotiate different ways of seeing the world with people that you care about? I mean, that's a, that's a very basic way of describing a, yeah. obviously really big experience of, of yours. So I don't want to take anything no, away that's, from that that's if, fine. if that's fair. Yeah. And so in my mind, it, well, one, it's not generally done on Facebook. Um, <laughs> you know, hey, mom, dad, process theologian now. I'll Talk to you when you're persuaded to come my way. Um, when, when you're present to God and you can feel the lure to call me, let me know. Um, but but more to the, the, the sense of I mean process work is ultimately built on relationality, on how we um, see ourselves in a particular moment in context. How do we understand our presence? How do we understand what we bring with us? But in seeing ourselves, how do we see another? That that is, what are they bringing with them as well? What are they? My guess is usually miscommunications about faith have less to do with faith at the end of the day and more to do with this is something that's been important to me for a long time. This is something that's given me comfort and care and love and uh, and helped me live. And I want that for you. Mm-hmm. And so you have to do it my way yeah, to get it the same. It goes both ways. Right. And so how we communicate that to another person matters. Yeah. It, it's not that, okay, well, you know, my theology is better because it's only... 80 years old from a philosophical system, and yours is ancient. You know, go away, Grandpa, theology. Um, but more to that sense of, tell me what's important to you, and let me tell you how I'm doing that now. If, if loving God is important, well, OK, well, I'm doing that, and here's how, right. and here's what that means to me now, and here's how that comes into being, and it may not be at Sunday worship or in Wednesday night matins or, um, you know, youth retreats a go-go. It right. may be in that space of I can be more authentically who I am around other people and show them that I care, and to me that's where God is found, so I'm going to do that.
4: Yeah.
1: Um, does that get yeah, that, yeah, markedly close to what
4: about? it and I think it, does, I think it, it also <laughs> addresses like, we're seeing a very big division right now in America between um, kind of cons- more conservative Christianity and the growth of kind of more activist left, more liberal Christianity. And I think that there's, we have to figure out a way to have that conversation um, if we're going to move forward in Christianity in this country? And I, I think we, your answer is is the answer. Like we've got to keep trying to walk with people even when, as far as we can, as far as they'll let us.
1: Yeah, I mean, we have to remind people that we care and that just as we are responsible for that, they are responsible to care for us as well. That it can't just be about conversion, convincing, coercion, whatever that is, that there's only one way somewhere, um, but that who we are now matters at the end of the day, and in that mattering, it, it requires us to rethink some of our relationships from time to time, yeah. and sometimes it means stopping certain relationships from time to time, is that, you know, our continued conversation is obviously hurting both of us, let's take a break. Um, And I think sometimes that's just as caring as trying to figure it all out at the end of the day is realizing that, hey, you know, you are a good person and you're doing good things. I don't want to get in the way of you doing that. Please don't get in the way of me doing it Mm -hmm. as well.
0: Yeah. Hey, friends, it's Ryan again. And if you are still listening, guess what? Be excited because part two is coming next week. When we were sitting down to record this conversation, we realized that there was so much to talk about. We were just beginning to skim the surface of part one in process philosophy and theology, and Jason was such a great guy. We're like, hey, let's keep talking. Let's press record again. We took a break, got some more beer, came back, and talk more about open and relational process theology, also from the perspective of those from a non Christian tradition. So keep listening. If you like this episode, share the brew online, and look forward to seeing you next week.
4: Peace.